Welcome to the Calvary Baltimore Weekly Sermon. Calvary meets in the Joppa Falston area between Baltimore and Bel Air, and our pastor is Josh Plantholt. Come join us on a Sunday. Our service info is at calvarychapelbaltimore.org. And now, here's this week's teaching. I'd like to turn your attention this morning to the chapter that never ends, chapter 12 of Revelation. <laughs> You're never getting out. <clears throat> Life sentence. Um, let's get a running start in, sh- in uh, verse 7, uh, but we're in Revelation chapter 12. <clears throat> now, war arose in heaven. Real quick, is anyone's allergies driving them crazy today? Oh, my goodness. So if I sound more annoying than usual, just blame it on allergies. Uh uh, verse 7, now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. And he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven, praise God. And the dr- great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives, even unto death. My original plan this morning was to finish chapter 12, and whoa, oh, what a silly dream I had, uh, because I started writing my thoughts on verse 12, and that's all we got. So, um, ver- verse 12 is both a, a conclusion to the middle portion of chapter 12, and the introduction to the last portion of chapter 12. So a lot hinges on this verse, and we need to understand it thoroughly. Um, aside from that, it's incredibly impactful. So uh, verse 12. <clears throat> Therefore, and we're done our reading. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I could do it too, and you know it. <clears throat> um, Therefore, whenever you read a therefore in scripture, that tells you in light of everything else we just read. What did we just read? We just read that the child was coming and was to be born and to ascend to the right hand of the Father. Who is this child? It's Jesus Christ. In light of everything Jesus accomplished. And then Satan freaks out and makes war in heaven. And Michael spanks him and throws him down to the earth. In light of Satan's best attempt to overthrow heaven with a hundred million demons. He's defeated and kicked out of heaven because there's no more room for him up here. In light of the fact that... They, they conquered the, the beast because they loved not their lives unto death. The fact that Satan has been thrown to earth and now he accuses and attacks and kills Christians. But God tells us, heaven sings, that martyrdom equates to the conquering of the dragon. That when Satan kills us, it partakes in the furthering of his slaughter. That the more Satan kills us, the more Satan's kingdom is overthrown. And so, in light of all of these glorious realities, 
Therefore, rejoice, O heavens and you who dwell in them. So many people think about the book of Revelation and specifically God in Revelation as a mean old angry guy, don't they? Who just gets peeved and starts throwing lightning bolts at countries and hailstones and ah, they're annoying me. I'm going to shake this country for a little bit and there's earthquakes and they act like God's such an angry God. This guy on a big golden throne with long white hair somewhere and he's angry. But yet when we read this book honestly, we see the exact opposite. Constantly we're seeing heaven Sing and rejoice and gladness and glee. The number is roughly, there are 28 worship songs recorded in the book of Revelation. Did you know there's more worship songs recorded in this book than there are seals, trumpets, and bowls combined? Our God is a God who created, enjoys, surrounds, partakes, and commands us to worship. And what is heaven worshiping? Because There are lots of, in these 28 songs, lots of different reasons why the people or the angels or the cherub are worshiping in the book of Revelation. But specifically here, I want you to see that they are worshiping because the dragon has been defeated. There is a theme here and all throughout the book of Revelation that the church needs to incorporate because as we, as America become a more evil culture, the more we are going to be groomed to hate God's justice. The more evil a culture, the more we hate God's justice. When Adam and Eve realized they were naked, what was the first thing they did? They hid in a bush. (laughs) They were hiding from the justice of God. Something that we cannot miss here is that heaven rejoices When evil is defeated, there is great worship in heaven when God exercises his justice. The longest song in this book, Revelation, occurs when Babylon, the evil city, falls. And again, as we draw from Psalm chapter 2, why, oh, why do the nations rage and conspire against the Lord and against his anointed? God who sits in heaven laughs. He laughs at the schemes of man because they will be crushed. They are futile. They are pathetic. And here's what we need to gather because God is not only showing us what heaven sings about, but God is also showing the church on what we are to sing about. God's might and God's victory over evil. One of of the songs that are most precious to the church is Martin Luther's hymn, Almighty Fortress is our God. Now you know I don't sing uh, for the worship team, but uh, in the third section, I, I love it. I was my war chant this morning. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we treble, tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Isn't that awesome? Uh, One of our most precious songs is of God's power and victory over Satan. As believers, we we don't want to disconnect our worship and our praise and our gratitude and our satisfaction from God's justice and from God's victory over evil. Now, 
There's a nuance here. And we don't want to misunderstand because all believers should want to see people saved. We should want to see our enemies saved. We should want to see the people that drive us crazy <laughs> saved. In fact, what did Jesus tell us? Pray for your enemies. Pray for them. Okay, that's really, have you ever prayed for your enemies? God, I pray that you bless them. You know, you're <laughs> gritting through your teeth. But let me tell you if, you, if you ever, if you have bitterness towards anybody, I promise you, the best way to get over it is to pray that God blesses that person. Amen. You cannot pray to, for the, the person that drives you most crazy in this world that God blesses them. You cannot hold malice. God supernaturally melts it away. So that's something you struggle with. There's your pastoral tip for the day. Um, <laughs> and to hope that God touches and saves and blesses people. But at the same time, when evil people plan to do evil things, like how Satan seeks to do evil things, God is showing us here today that when evil is thwarted, the godly are supposed to rejoice. We're supposed to project gratitude. And notice today's text. This is not a request to rejoice, is it? It's a command. We're com uh, rejoice, therefore. Again, I say rejoice. This is the command to rejoice. When Auschwitz was shut down, God's people rightly rejoiced. You know, I, I was... When they did an ultrasound with um, my mom, actually, uh, they said I was going to have so many complications when I was born. And I don't know how they picked up uh, an extreme love for bacon in there, but they did. <laughs> He's going to be addicted to trans fats, ma'am. I'm just letting you know right now. <sighs> they told her to terminate me. They really pressured her to do so. And she said, even if he's a stillborn, I'm going to have him. And I, and I was supposed to be born without a chin, and I have two, so I, I gained the system. <laughs> and <laughs> I love you too. Uh, <laughs> we should rejoice when Satan's plans are thwarted. Every child born when, the, when someone has been pushing for them to be terminated is a blessing. I'll never forget when little Lizzie was born and they, they counseled to the, for the same thing that I was counseled to do. Oh, how we celebrated. We should rejoice at these things. And point being, when evil is overcome, the godly need and should to rejoice. I don't know about making two chins, but we should rejoice heartily unto the Lord. <clears throat> Uh, I love history. When, when Nazi Germany lost the war in Europe and Churchill announced Germany's unconditional surrender, and I don't know if anyone's ever listened to that broadcast. It's incredible. And he declared V-Day, uh, a victory day in England. And the people were so happy and so overjoyed. For example, in London, the people celebrated, partied, and sang songs in the streets for two whole days as they should have. <laughs> Evil was defeated. Now, what many people don't know about this story is that as soon as Churchill finished addressing the nation in the House of Commons, Churchill and roughly 600 of England's leaders 
As soon as the broadcast was done, they walked across the street through the crowds to St. Margaret's for a victory Thanksgiving service. It was the first thing the leaders did. And, the fir- and, and, and so again, the first thing Churchill did after declaring victory was to attend church and to sing and say thank you to God. And when the service began, the speaker's chaplain, Dr. Alan Don, read the names of 21 members of the commons who had lost their lives in the war, while all the people in the parliament were on their knees. And finally, the service concluded in a song called, Oh God, Our Help in Ages Past. I want to read it for you. Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home. Under the shadow of your throne, your saints have dwelt secure. Sufficient is your arm alone, and our defense is sure. Before the hills an order stood, or earth received its frame. From everlasting you are God, to endless years the same. A thousand ages in your sight are like an evening gone. Short as the watch that ends the night before the rising sun. Time like an ever-rolling stream soon bears us all away. We fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day. O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. Still be our guard while troubles last in our eternal home. And... As the story goes, these 600 leaders that saw England through World War II and the shelling of the Germans all over the country, the story goes that they sang so loudly that the choir boys you couldn't hear. They were singing so loud you could no longer hear the singing or the party or the honking of horns outside because they were so grateful God saved their island under their watch. And after the service, uh, that's when Churchill went out into the crowds. And have you ever seen that photo where he's given the peace sign? That's when that photo was taken, just after they sang that song. Uh, he was so grateful that God used him to save the country. You know, as God's people, as, as believers, we are commanded to rejoice when evil is thwarted. And, and I want us to spend time on this this morning because we're so quick, aren't we, if we're honest, Aren't we so quick to go to God when we're desperate for help? And so quick to ignore him when things are good? Aren't we so quick to forget of God's blessings and his goodness when things are going easily breezily? (laughs) But we must not do this. It It is a sin to not rejoice when he brings about victory. It is good and right and appropriate to praise God for his providence and his goodness when he saves us from Satan's intentions or sin or the effects of a fallen world. And so I, I, want, I want us to see God's command today and, and simply apply it to your life. When you don't know how, you, how you're going to pay the bills and it happens, praise the Lord. <laughs> when you're sick and you get better, praise the Lord. This is not a request, this is a command. When God gives you victory, it is good and right for his people to say thank you and express it. Let's keep reading. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. Even though Jesus has conquered Satan, sin, and death, 
Satan has not, ha, has not been thrown into the lake of fire yet. Now, have you ever asked your, the question, why? God, why haven't you returned? God, why is Satan still alive? And the answer is, because God is good. Let me point it out, put it to you like this. If Jesus came back 10, 20, 30 years ago, would you be going to heaven? No. He waited because he loves you. And if Jesus came back today, would your kids, your grandkids, your great, great, great grandkids be going to heaven? No, maybe not. And so he waits because he loves them. Do you see? Peter talks about this in 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God waits to return so that heaven may be filled. You know, we may be thinking every day, you ever have an especially bad day and go, Jesus, this would be a great time for you to come back. <laughs> I am really ready for this moment. Tax day's tomorrow and I'm not ready for this. (laughs) But every day he waits, it's because he's good. And he desires all to be saved, not wishing that any should perish. So every day that we're still here is another day God is is showing us that he is still not done gathering his people and adding to the church. Now, I've answered why Jesus doesn't come back for us right now, but another question we can have is why did God throw Satan down to earth and not down to hell? Right? That sure seems like that'd make things a little easier. Right? It's important to understand, as most clearly seen on the cross of Christ and I think if you want to tuck Romans 8.28 in the back of your head. That God uses this sinful world to drive sinful people to repentance. Think about it. If somehow God snapped his fingers and removed all Satan and all the demons and all evil and all evil influence out of this world... The only thing that would produce is a globe full of people who are convinced they do not need a savior. Remember when David, when it was a time when the king should be off to war and David was strolling in his palace. He was in far more danger in that palace with Bathsheba on that rooftop than he ever was in a battlefield. We are never in more danger than when we are most comfortable. And think about yourself. You know, our most intense prayers and longings for God are typically when things are really bad. And think about your conversion. How many of you came to Christ when things were just swell? You know, typically not the story. It's normally when you've hit rock bottom and then some. You say, God, I make a horrible God. you got to dig me out of this mess. Now, it's not that we need bad things to drive us to God, but God does use bad things for good. Again, Jesus is coming back to earth, but the reason he has not returned to put things back completely right yet is that he's not done gathering his people and he's not done seeing sinners repent. And so here we we see in Revelation 12, and Satan is thrown to the earth for a reason. 
The reason being, A, as much as Satan is an evil, slanderous, malicious, I like this word, pernicious, vile rebel, notice even he's not outside of God's sovereign will. Even Satan is used by God to advance the gospel, to strengthen the church of driving souls into heaven and repentance. Paul tells us in Romans 5, verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. You ever suffer before? If you don't think, if you can't say yes, you're lying. (laughs) Suffering produces endurance. You ever have a little kid fall apart because there's, you know, yesterday we got Chick-fil-A for my kids for breakfast. It was the ultimate treat. And my kid was upset because it came in a different box and fell apart. Boogers, tears, tantrums. It was a smaller box than normal. But when we endure enough sufferings and trials, do we not mature? And when you're a teenager and you get a flat tire, it's the end of the world. By the time you're 40, it's like, I got to call the tow guy. Okay, you know, you just get used to it. Suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul lays out that all of our sufferings are being used by God to mature us and drive us to God. That includes Satan's attacks. B. (laughs) Satan has been thrown to earth and, and not into hell. He's let loose upon this world and is pouring out his great wrath. And one of the reasons God does that, and one of the reasons that this text is, things that this text is reminding us of, is that the life that we live here and now on this earth is not our heaven. You ready for a shocking revelation? I thought of this. It's brilliant. Maryland is not heaven. (laughs) I know. I know. Me and Aristotle. Um, (laughs) To the unbeliever, this this life is as close to heaven as they're ever going to get. But to the believer, this is as close to hell as we'll ever get. Which means retirement. Retirement is not heaven. A promotion. A promotion is not heaven. And a good meal. Oh, I love a good meal. Look at me. You know it's true. Oh, Kenny yells, I can't. He's blind if you don't know. <laughs> well, you can feel my neck later, Kenny. You'll, you'll, you'll put it together quick. <laughs> There's a hand sandwich in there. Um, uh, saving it for later, Kenny. Toasting it. Um, <laughs> a good meal is not heaven. Sex and pleasure and golf or driving a nice car, none of it's heaven. Now, this world is full of blessings from God, like laughter. But it is also a place full of wrath and sin and death and loss and pain. And all believers have to understand that this life is not worth losing the next over. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but to lose his soul? 
nothing. There isn't anyone five seconds inside of eternity that wish they spent more time being selfish. I assure you that. And there isn't anyone that spent five seconds inside of eternity that regrets the time that they laid down their lives for the glory of God. And as we read in verse 11, the Christian can lay down their lives because, as Paul said in Philippians 3, 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul literally says in the Greek, I count everything in this life as poop compared to what we have in Christ. So Satan may wrath and rage all day long. But to the believer, he's not wreaking havoc on our heaven. He's been kicked out of our heaven to earth. And so the things that he messes up here down on earth, as horrible and as painful and as great as these losses may be, believers can endure this wrath because the loss that we experience here is nothing compared to the blessing that God has in store for his people in Christ Jesus. And the loss that we experience down here, you see, here's the, here's the mistake people make. What, what is it? Religion is the opioid of the masses. We were, we were, is the big march. It is true that all the loss that we experience is but nothing compared to the hope that we have in store for us. But it's also true that according to God's providence and goodness, the loss that we experience here on earth is not wasted until we get to heaven. The loss and the sufferings that we have here are maturing us and strengthening us to be better people here until we are called home. Don't be looking at some trial you're going through and go, well, one day God will make it better in heaven. Okay, that's true. But he also is using it to mature you now. We we have to get out of this pagan mindset of we're all perpetual victims of something. If you're going through suffering, God is maturing you to use you in a greater capacity. He's using you to produce a greater witness to the people around you. The greatest sermon you could give is to suffer well. Your family looks at you going through hell on earth and if you can proclaim Jesus Christ and put a smile on your face at the hope he gives you, let me tell you, that's better than dragging him in here and letting this guy talk to him for 45 minutes. God uses it powerfully. Now thirdly, let's keep reading. Verse 12 says, Therefore rejoice... O heavens and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. He knows that his time is short. We're done our reading, by the way. All of chapter 12 has been showing us that Satan's plans will not prevail. That Satan cannot outsmart and Outcommand or outmuscle God in any capacity. If you've learned anything from chapter 12, that's it. God is greater. That Satan cannot outsmart, outcommand, or outmuscle God in any capacity. And now we are shown that even Satan's days are numbered. God is so in control 
As Abraham Kuyper said, there is not one square inch of the entire universe that God does not declare mine. God is showing us that even Satan's days are numbered. God is so in control, even over the most rebellious, the, the dragon, that he knows, God knows the day, the hour, the second that he's going to be done with him and toss him into the lake of fire. And so today we see that Satan's days are numbered, but, and this is what I want us to end on, Satan's days are numbered, but so are ours. God knows the second you're going to die. Isaiah 46.10, I declare the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Psalm 33.11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the purposes of his heart to all generations. Proverbs 19.21, my plans are in a man's heart. Our many plans are in a man's heart, but the purpose of the Lord will prevail. Acts 1.7, Jesus replied, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Loved ones, there are two ways in which all of our days are numbered. We either die or the Lord returns and gathers us to himself. But either way, we must be ready. As Psalm 31 verses 14 says, I trust in you, O Lord, I say you are my God. My times are in your hands. Our time is fixed. And our time is short. Our life, as James 4.14 says, is but a vapor. You ever breathe on a cold morning and see a, that's your life. That's all it amounts to. And here is also the reality that Jesus could return at any moment. In one of Jesus' sermons, he said, Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Jesus said he's going to return when we or many don't expect him. And so whether through death or through the rapture, we got to be ready. And isn't it interesting Jesus spends so much time talking about his return in the gospel. And he makes it very clear that he could be returning at any moment. But then he speaks in a way as if he could return in the first century or the 101st century. There just seems to be no way of figuring out the timing. And then he even said, well, no one knows the day or the hour. And I love what's recorded here because the disciples hear this. And so often, aren't they our advocates in the Bible? They're, they're just as confused as we are. And they say, Jesus, tell us the signs of your coming, because they couldn't figure out what he was saying. And then Jesus gives them the signs of his coming. Oh, thank God we can figure it out. But then the signs of his coming, most of them happen in every generation. So now we're back confused as we were when we began. He says, you'll know when I'm returning when there's earthquakes. There's one all the time, Jesus. When there's famine, there's famine all the time. When there's war, war all the time. When there's rumors of war. Has there ever been a time there wasn't a rumor of a war? Of course not. He says when there's going to be false teachers. You can't drive a mile without hitting one around here. 
Not every sign, but almost all the signs Jesus gives as the signal for his return are things that happen in every generation. And so here's the point. Be ready. Be ready. We are to know that we could die soon or that Jesus could return today. Because the Christian life should be lived every day as if we are going to meet our maker at any moment. Even at this very hour. St. Augustine said, the last day is hidden so that every day may be regarded. Isn't that awesome? (laughs) The last day is hidden so that every day may be regarded. We need to be ready. If we're in contention with somebody, Jesus tells in the Sermon on the Mount, if you remember that you are fighting with someone, leave your gift at the altar. Get in the middle of church, leave. <laughs> leave and make peace as soon as possible. And if there's sin in our lives, we must repent now. There's no time to hold on to our sin. If Jesus is not a liar and he's telling the truth as he is the truth, we have no time to hang on to our sin. How horrible would it be to meet the Lord today? having rejected him for something else, for porn or drunkenness or whatever, the greatest tragedy ever. That there's no time for that. There's no time to hang on for sin. As Jesus said, therefore, be ye also ready. We have to be ready to meet the Lord. Now, this is a topic I have been so fascinated with since I was a little kid. I was convinced I was going to get left behind my entire childhood. If I walked downstairs and my parents were gone, I was left behind. It's definitely what happened. I'm that guy. The train's going to drive through my house. I was that one. But I'm not alone. This has been a common theme throughout all of church history. No one wants to be left behind. So someone asked John Wesley uh, what he would do if he knew this was his last day on earth. John Wesley was a Puritan. He started the Methodist movement with his brother Charles and and George Whitefield. And and this is what he replied. And they asked him sometime around noon. At four o'clock, I would have some tea. At six, I would visit Mrs. Brown in the hospital. Then at 7.30, I would conduct the midweek prayer service. And at 10, I would go to bed and wake up in glory. When Martin Luther was asked the same question 200 years earlier, he said, I would go out and plant a tree. (laughs) He was such a, he was a nut. What they were getting at is to always live in a state of readiness. What would you do if the Lord was coming back in an hour? I'd keep drinking my coffee. That's essentially what they're saying. So before we go, I want to talk about readiness. What does it mean to be ready to meet the Lord? Jesus is very clear on this in Matthew 24 when he talks about how we should prepare to meet him. We prepare for death and the return of the Lord in the same way. We live in active obedience to the will of God. We prepare for death and the return of the Lord in the same way. We live in active obedience to the will of God. So many people... If they were asked the same question as John Wesley, what would you do if the Lord was returning today? Wouldn't most people reply, I'd go out into the streets and tell everyone I know, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, and I would do this, and I would do that, and I'd make a Facebook video, and there there wouldn't be anything wrong with that. 
But it's missing the point of what they're trying to say. What Wesley was getting at was that he was willing, that he was walking in the will of God. When he had his cup of tea, as when he was in the hospital, as when he was in his prayer meeting, and when he was going to bed. And I want to share with you something because spiritual pride hates to hear what I'm about to say. <laughs> I am a pastor. Surprise, surprise. And I am equally in the will of God when I am on my knees in prayer before bed as when I am cooking dinner for my family. I am equally in the will of God when I am preaching as when I am helping my six-year-old with his homework. Do you understand? That the stay-at-home mom who is godly, who is faithful in what God has placed before them is just as in the will of God as a missionary in Uganda somewhere fighting off malaria. The husband who works really hard and comes home and loves his wife, he is as just as in the will of God as any faithful pastor. When Jesus tells us to be ready for the return of the Lord, there needs to be, of course, a faith in Jesus Christ and an active obedience to the will of God. But look at what the examples Jesus gives for those who are taken in Matthew 24, starting at verse six or 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son of Man, but the Father only. And I could preach there for a while, but let's not start. For, the, for, as, we were in, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. When Jesus returns, it will be like the days of Noah. When you think of the days of Noah, don't you just think of a bunch of mean people doing a bunch of mean things? Jesus describes it as people were having a party. They were eating. They were drinking. They were having a good old time. They were giving in marriage. They were having marriage ceremonies. And it was then that they were washed away in that flood. And when Jesus returns and the trumpet sounds, there will be no time to get ourselves ready. There will be no time to cast away our sin. There will be no time to fall on our knees in prayer. And the same is true with our doubt. Deaths, you know, sometimes when people die, there's warning. And sometimes there's not. But either way, Jesus wants us to be ready. And now listen who he describes as those who are ready. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. A blue-collar Christian working in the field, working to the glory of God, is the one who's ready to meet the Lord. Do you see that? Verse 41. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. The godly woman making bread is totally in the will of God when she's taken. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day the, your Lord is coming. Do you see? Jesus says that he was taking people. He wasn't taking only pastors in the middle of a sermon. He wasn't taking people only who were running Bible studies. He's not taking people who only pray six hours a day. He's taking regular people, doing regular things, who were living in the will of God because they were in obedience to the will of God. It's faithful people. Do you see this? Those who are ready to meet the Lord are faithful people. Verse 44, Jesus goes on to say, Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. 
Who then is the faithful and wise servant who his master has sent over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Now listen to what Jesus says next. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed. You know people that act like Jesus isn't coming at any moment? That's most people. And begins to beat his fellow servants, gets harsh with others. And eats and drinks with drunkards and associates with evil. The master of that servant will come one day when he does not expect him at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces. Jesus isn't very politically correct now, is he? And will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All of our days are numbered. And all of us will meet the Lord. And all of us must be ready and prepare ourselves for that day. And how do we do that? How do we prepare ourselves? How do we get ready to meet God? We prepare for that day, the day when we meet the Lord, when we daily live in active obedience to the will of God. Loved ones, wherever God has put you, if you need to work for your family, you're in the will of God working. If you're cooking dinner for your family, you're in the will of God cooking for your family. (laughs) Wherever God has put you, in whatever season of life he has placed you, just be faithful. Study his word and obey his word. You study his word and obey his word. And let me tell you, you cannot obey his word if you're not studying his word. You have to study his word and obey his word. How do you walk in the will of God? You study his word and you obey his word. And then sometimes there's this thing, this person called the Holy Spirit, who's real. And he prompts us to do things. And when he does, obey. Obey. We prepare ourselves to meet God when we live in an act of obedience to God. As Jesus lays out in John 14, 21. And of course, That life of faith, all Christian readiness, begins with a faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. (laughs) We thank you for the treasures that you have buried inside of it for us. We, We thank you for your kindness and your grace. And God, we pray that you help us to live in a state of readiness. God, we pray that you would help us to, maybe, maybe there's a sin that we've been struggling with for years and years and years. God, we ask through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would break those things today. And God, when, when you wrought these victories, help us to celebrate them. God, we pray for those that do not know you, but they want to live in a way, God, that when they die and pass away, they may hear those most precious words, well done, good and faithful servant. God, we pray for for those that that feel this way, that they they want to live a life that pleases you, that, that they may resolve themselves to live for you from this moment forth, that they may study your word to live your word. And God, we pray for the faithful brothers and sisters in here who are weary and tired. 
God, we pray for strength for them. God, that the, the suffering that you are producing in them is, is in producing endurance and endurance character and character hope. God, magnify the good things, the things that you're maturing in them so that they may see your plans out of their sufferings. We do pray. God, we ask that you would be with this church, that you would be with us, God, that you would add to our number and that you would equip us to bring your gospel to the ends of the earth. And that starts with our families. So be with us now. Thank you for all that you've provided, all that you're providing and all that you will continue to provide. Pour your spirit out upon us mightily. And in Jesus' name, all who agreed said, amen. Thanks for joining us for today's message from Calvary, Baltimore. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email with your questions, prayer requests, or just to say hi. Our email address is calvary.faithlife at gmail.com. If you'd like to donate to support the work God is doing through Calvary Baltimore, go to calvarychapelbaltimore.org and click Donate Now. And if you're in the area, stop by on a Sunday morning. For directions and service times, go to our website at calvarychapelbaltimore.org. If you can't be here in person, we also live stream on our website and on our Facebook page. We hope you've been blessed by this week's teaching. Until next time, as Pastor Josh says, study the Word to live the Word to share the word and join us again for the next Calvary Baltimore Weekly Sermon.